are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to another edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Today, we'll be chatting with Cyrus Satsas from Locked On Warriors as Steph Curry drops 50 points in an all-time playoff performance to push the Warriors past the Sacramento Kings in Game 7 and into the next round. Then we'll be chatting with Matt Moore from Locked On Nuggets. Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic both had stellar games to lead the Nuggets past the Phoenix Suns in Game 1 of their semifinal series. What adjustments can we expect heading into Game 2 of that series? And lastly... We'll be chatting with Alex Wolf from Locked On Knicks. As Jalen Brunson and the Knicks drop game one against the Miami Heat and an injured Jimmy Butler. Are the Knicks in trouble? Now, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Locked On. That's prizepicks.com, promo code Locked On. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. If you're an everydayer, let us know. Whether it's on the way to work, on your lunch break, in the gym, thank you for making Locked On to Be a part of your day every single day. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Warriors, Cyrus Sot, so you can find wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Warriors and Cyrus. My goodness, where we just witnessed to an all-time NBA playoff performance. Truly, we may never see another talent the likes of Kavon Looney ever again, the way that he performed in that right. game seven. No, 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 I kid, I kid, I just, look, right. Steph Curry was sensational in this game seven to close out the Sacramento Kings, 50 points. A, he sets a career high for himself in playoff scoring with 50 points, and that is also now the new all-time record for most yeah. points scored in a game seven. This, this was an all-time performance by Steph Curry. Which is crazy for him, right? I mean, you think of all the people where you talk about, you know, use that that adage, that label, whatever you want to call it, an all-time performance. Uh, yeah, I mean, for Steph to to pull that off at 35, too. Um, you know, here, here's what I've been saying, and I don't know if you agree with this comparison or not, but I, I said this earlier in the season. I said this again early in this series, and I'm still saying it now. that This Warriors team, in a lot of ways, reminds me of the 1998 Bulls. Um in the sense that the 98 Bulls, even though they they had a much better regular season than the Warriors, no doubt, but they also like were were clearly the weakest of the three championship Bulls teams with that second run with Jordan. And they also like in the playoffs, I remember they had their only seven game series of that entire run with Jordan in any of the six titles. They got pushed to a game seven and that was in the Eastern Conference finals, not the opening round, but. Uh, you know, the, the, it was the first time where you kind of saw them weakening and, and it made you wonder that even if they had come back to try to win a fourth straight championship, you don't know if they would have done it. Like you were starting to see them age a little bit. You're seeing weaknesses. And in a lot of ways, I, you you know, I kind of see that with this Warriors team. Like I I, I think they can still win it all. Like they clearly have that. Uh, they, they proved to anyone out there who said experience doesn't matter. That's total BS. Um, experience absolutely does matter. I mean, look at the free throw count and it affected even the Golden State Warriors uh, to a certain extent. But man, dude, th th this performance was, I, the reason why I bring up that 98 Bulls team is because this performance was Jordan-esque. It was like, just like a, a really, like I'm going to take over and this is going to be about me, not anyone else. 
everyone's going to remember this game for me. And of course, Kevon Looney and his 21 rebounds. So it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, Steph had 38 shots, right? This wasn't a, you know, okay. He stepped up when he did. This was, he carried the team start. Yes. To Clay Thompson, four of 19 in this game. Wiggins, five of 16. Jordan Poole off the bench. Three of nine. Like, this was not a pretty game at all outside of the Steph Curry masterclass. And then, again, as you already alluded to, Kevon Looney with his insane 21 rebound performance. He had 11 points. He had four assists to go along with it. Looney is the first player since Dwight Howard back in 08 with multiple 20 rebound games in a playoff series. I mean, is it safe to say, Cyrus, that throughout this seven-game series against the Kings, of players not named Steph Curry, Kevon Looney would have had to have been the Warriors MVP for this series. Yeah, I, I mean, in this series, absolutely. Because, yeah, someone asked the question, uh, and I've been doing some media stuff all day, sorry, but like in one of the one of the other shows I was, I was on, uh, the question came up, like, who was the second best Warriors player in this series? I mean, it's pretty obvious who the first one is. And in last year's postseason, it was Andrew Wiggins. You could still make the argument for Wiggins because Wiggins, what he did today, even though you're right, he was five for 16 from the field. Um, but he also uh, really put a lot of pressure on De'Aaron Fox in this game on both sides of the ball. He's been defending Fox a lot at a very efficient clip uh, before today's game. I think he was holding Fox to something like 34, 35% shooting um, in a considerable sample size. It was like nearly 30 minutes of defending him. And so, you know, he, he's, he hassled Fox a lot defensively. But one adjustment that I was able to notice, and it was today was a hard game to actually pay attention to nuance, like especially, I mean, I mean, I'm guessing for like someone not emotionally invested, you could feel the, you know, the gravity of this game, but there were, there were um, the, the, the building, just the air, like it was so intense. This was, this was everything you want a game seven to be between two teams like this. Absolutely, man. Intense is I think the perfect word. It was very intense. And, and so it was hard to like kind of pay attention to the nuance, but one thing I did that did stick out to me and, and, and one some of my colleagues also pointed out that Kerr did make very subtle adjustments like guarding the pick and roll, for example, defensively. But um, Andrew Wiggins, when he had the ball, he did not hesitate to go directly at De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox oftentimes was defending Wiggins. Um, I don't know if that was the right move, but at the same time, it's like, who else are you going to ha- hide De'Aaron Fox on if you're going to hide him? Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but of, of all the the players on the on the Kings roster, he was probably the, the biggest liability, th- despite how good he is offensively. So they they oftentimes would put him on Wiggins, and tonight Wiggins was making a punish was punishing him for that. Like Wiggins never had a or rarely at least I don't remember him ever having a post up game at Minnesota. He was a natural true shooting guard, and now he's like turn into this power forward type player where even though he has the physique of a shooting guard, he's, he's attacking the post a lot. And he was just going right at Fox wearing him down because lost in today's game. I mean, look, we're going to talk about steps 50 forever. I mean, that's historic all, you know, he it's an all time Mark. Um, but Darren Fox, who has been absolutely lights out this whole series coming into tonight was not great. I mean, he played 37 minutes was five for 19 from the field finished with just 16 points and a huge reason for that was Andrew Wiggins, both defending him, and then when Wiggins had the ball, he was going right at him, like attacking him hard. And, and the effect of that was showing, because Wiggins is a very strong player. And, and next round, by the way, Wiggins is going to be guarding LeBron probably, and that's a whole other fascinating matchup. But uh, to wrap it up for this to the, for this question you asked, sorry to be so long-winded, uh, Andrew Wiggins was their second-best player last year. You might make the case he was again this series. But if you told me it's Kevon Looney, there's no argument, man, because that dude is just balling. I know you just mentioned next round there. Look, I, I mean, 
It's going to be, it's it's Steph Curry versus LeBron James, part five. We've seen these guys duke it out in multiple different finals appearances. You know, it was, it was what, four years in a row there, right? Yeah, Just yeah. repeatedly over and over and over. And now they're doing it for the first time, both of them on the Western Conference side of things here, LeBron with the Lakers, Steph obviously still with the Warriors. What's your series prediction, Cyrus? I, um... I don't, I don't, the Lakers to me are a much better matchup for the Warriors. I'll say this for anyone who watches this segment and immediately laughs or disagrees. Um, throw away the regular season record. The Lakers won that 3 1. I think they won the last three. Um, in no way, shape, or form do those regular season games reflect reality between these two teams and who they are now uh, and how they're playing and the personnel. Because both teams were missing players every game. The Lakers made obviously huge moves that got better. Uh, whereas the Warriors were just injured for almost the entire year. The regular season for the Warriors is almost just a, a, a misnomer that we can't even really count. This is a whole different team now. Um, I think the Lakers are a vastly uh, superior matchup for the Warriors, meaning that it's easier for the Warriors. Um, a player like Gary Payne II, who who was even him, like GP2 to me is one of the best defenders in this game, but the King's athleticism and their speed was giving everybody problems, man. It's no wonder that that team had the best offensive rating, I think, ever uh, this season. I've heard a lot of people say that. I haven't done the research myself. But um, so I think the Warriors are going to be able to handle, handle this Lakers team. And, and and part of it is because Draymond Green has always been effective guarding Anthony Davis. That is like Draymond is salivating a bad matchup. I guarantee you that. And Andrew Wiggins has very... Uh, in an underrated manner, defended LeBron James incredibly effectively effectively the last two years. And that's likely going to be the matchup for Wiggins. And I just don't know if the Lakers have the offense besides those two um, to cause enough problems. I know D'Angelo Russell is a great three-point shooter, but um, you know he's not going to face the same defense he faced in Memphis. This is going to be very different. He's going to routinely have uh, uh, hands in his face. And I think it's going to be Warriors in five or six. I, I'm very confident that this will, this will be easier. Because because besides everything I just said, home court goes back to Golden State. It's incredible that the Warriors, despite a 44-38 and 38 record finishing the season as, as the sixth seed, they're now essentially the two seed in the West um, just by winning this, this, uh, this opening round against the Kings because now they have home court. Um, and... And it's going to play to their to their favor. They won 33 games at home this year. They only won 30 only, I say, but they won 31 last year. So they actually improved that mark this season. They are strong at home. I know game six was ugly, but uh, I'm going to say Warriors in five or six. And that's an objective take. I would say that regardless of whether or not uh, the Warriors are my team. Warriors in five or six. You heard it here first, folks. For a deep dive on this game and the upcoming series between the Warriors and Lakers, be sure to check out Cyrus over at Locked On Warriors. He will have you covered for everything. Cyrus, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. I appreciate you, Jackson. Anytime, man. Thank you. Coming up, how were Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic so effective in Game 1 against the Phoenix Suns? And what adjustments and expectations do we have for Game 2 of this semifinal series? We're going to get there in just one moment. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Next game, how about Nikola Jokic to score more than 26.5 points? What about LeBron James to have more than 7.5 rebounds? Or how about Kevin Durant to have less than 6.5 assists? And maybe Steph Curry to have more than 3.5 three-pointers made? So... 
what is prize picks? It's daily fantasy sports, but how does it work? Basically, you pick two to six players, and if they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times back on your money on any entry that you submit. There's no competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. Prize picks offers projections on any sport that you watch. That's NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL, PGA. They've got you covered for all the action. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that simple. They're safe. They offer fast withdrawals. Currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. And now, every day of the NBA playoffs, one PrizePix user will win a chance of becoming a millionaire. Full details can be found at prizepix.com slash million. So download the PrizePix app or go to prizepix.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code Locked On. If you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. If you deposit $50, PrizePix will give you $50. So don't forget to enter promo code Locked On at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday, as always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. Be sure to tune in throughout the week as we have you covered for all of the postseason coverage right here at Locked On NBA. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Nuggets, Matt Moore, who you can follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Nuggets. And Matt, the Nuggets just running away with the 125-107 Game 1 win against the Suns. We're going to get into some of the specifics here, but I want to focus on Jamal Murray first, who led the way with 34 points, 9 dimes. Now, now I will say going 6 of 10 from deep kind of helps in this regard, but how is he able to be so effective against the Suns, not only scoring the ball, but just also as a playmaker? You know, going back and kind of watching the film today, Jackson, I got to say, like, a lot of it's that he emulated Chris Paul and what Chris Paul did to the Nuggets two years ago. Uh, first possession of the game, drop coverage versus DeAndre Ayton. He snakes back to the middle and hits a little leaner. Later on in the, in the same quarter, he drifts on a side pick and roll, gets Aiden, extends it far enough on a, a little bit of a show coverage to get Aiden into a switch coverage, step back and hits a three. The complete package there, his assists have gone up. He is more of a, of a uh, floor general than he has ever been. He has been a playmaker more than he has ever been. And he was surly last night post game as he often is after strong performances. He gets angrier and angrier the better he is. It was a dominating performance. He really tortured the Suns defense who they started a Kogi to be like, this is our answer to Nikhil Alexander Walker. And then that didn't work. And then they were like, here's Landry Shamit for some reason and that that didn't work. So there's a lot, I think, for the Suns to work on and clean up in game two, including, you know, after the game, Monty Williams said, we're going to have to change up some coverages on Jamal Murray and, to be quite honest, they better be careful with that because that can lead to even bigger problems for Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, they've got to do something, right? They can't let Murray average 34 over the rest of the series or it's going to be a pretty short series, all things considered. Now, look, this game, I mean, it felt like the Nuggets were kind of in control of this game after the second quarter, right? A big 37-19 uh, second quarter there. But then, you know, with about seven minutes to go in this game, you know, it's a 10-point deficit, 11-point deficit. And, you know, you're thinking, okay, maybe Phoenix has a chance to get back into this. And then the Nuggets reel off this 14-0 run and just completely run away with it. What was working so well for Denver in that stretch? Or conversely, what was going so wrong for Phoenix for them to just run away with the game the way that they did? Turnovers was a big part of it. You know, turnovers, 
if you turn the ball over to the Nuggets, the Nuggets record when they have fewer turnovers than you is about 70%. They win 70% of the time when you have more turnovers than them. So it's a huge problem. Obviously, the two Bruce Brown kind of conversions for dunks in the in transition there. You've got Nikola Jokic uh, making a few plays in there as well. And look, obviously, the three-point shooting helped out Denver in this one. Um, I think really what you kind of saw was, was the Suns are still trying to figure out what their best version is. They're still trying to figure out how to maximize things. And honestly, the Nuggets really kind of surprised them. I think the Suns came into the same, to this series with the same kind of approach. Honestly, a lot of their fans did, which was like, oh, the Nuggets are, are toast defensively. This will be an easy series. Denver's toast defensively if they don't care and if you actually are able to target their weaknesses. And the Suns did none of that in game one, which is a big reason why they lost control of that series. Jax, I got to tell you, 15 years covering the NBA, I don't know how many times that I've seen a team shoot 55% from the field and be down 20. That's what was happening before the starters were pulled for Phoenix. An absolutely crazy game in terms of the advantage that Denver had off turnovers and from the three-point line. And you talk about the three-point advantage there. I mean, it, just looking at the discrepancy, right? Nuggets shot 16 of 37, so 43.2% from deep. Suns were 7 of 23. You're, you're not going to win. I feel like you're going to win very few NBA games just on that low volume of threes to begin with. And then also, the percentage is not exactly going to win you many games either. Just a smidge over 30%. So Nuggets were plus 27 from long distance. What happens? Where are the advantages for the Nuggets in this series, Matt, when the three-point shooting inevitably levels back out, right? Because this you, you can't expect this to happen three more games in a row. No, I mean, Aaron Gordon's probably not going to shoot perfect from three-point range. That's probably not going to happen uh, for LAG. Although, you know, he shot better this year. Uh, early on in the season, he was shooting 40% for a while. It's probably going to level back off, but I will say, like, look, this is I'm always preaching against drop coverage. I have, this has been my thing in the NBA is you can't play drop coverage in the playoffs. Bucks got away with it one year in 2021, but they were toast this year to the Heat in large part because of that. The Suns are looking at the same thing. They've got an aging, undersized defender in Chris Paul chasing Jamal Murray off of screens. DeAndre Aiden has to drop back. That gives space. And when you're in that thing, now you're trying to bring help. And now that's when the Nuggets can kick to outside shooters. And the Nuggets also have great ball movement. And part of this, too, is I, I think what we're going to see is that the Suns make adjustments. The Nuggets are still going to get those shots up. I think they're going to have an advantage in every game in the series from the three-point line in terms of attempts. It's whether or not they make them or not. And the question is like, what degree, right? Because if you just take more to a significant degree, you can make less, you can make a lower percentage and still have an advantage. Uh, I do think that we maybe see Phoenix trying to change things up. It's going to be very difficult for them. That's not what they want to do. They don't want to do this. They want to take contested mid-range jumpers. That's who they are. But we did see Damian Lee in that second half. I think we're actually going to see a lot more Damian Lee to provide some spacing for the Suns. I think Monty Williams recognizes we do not have a chance if we can't put up enough threes just to keep pace with Denver. Jokic finished the game with 24, 19, and 5. So, you know, just a, a regular night at the office for Jokic. But the efficiency, not quite where you normally expect it to be for him, right? Just 9 of 21 is how he finished the game. But he was actually 5 of 14 there in the first half. What, why exactly was he struggling so much against the Suns there in the first half? So the numbers I will put some context on because you have to consider the fact that a lot of those were rebound, miss, rebound, miss, rebound, miss, rebound, miss. Like that's where a lot of those were on the tap backs. But I will say this, Jokic's wrist has been bothering him over the last really two years. Like it's been a long time on this injury. He re-aggravated it in Eurobasket a year ago in the summer, like all the way back nine months ago in the summer, he re-aggravated it. It's been bothering him. It got worse in the second half. There was an, in an injury that occurred actually in the Bucks game late in the season the rap that he has had post game has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I do kind of wonder if some of Jokic's efficiency, which is such a crucial part of his game is being compromised against it. Now 
That doesn't mean that he can't come out the next game. It's feeling a little bit better. Just that day, it feels better. And he absolutely crushes an efficiency because he got pretty good shots up whenever he wanted to. And I actually think he'll probably be better versus Aiden. Aiden got him a few times in the post. It was the only thing Aiden did well. So I think that we probably see better performance from Nikola Jokic at some point in the series, but it may be inconsistent. And that's going to open the door for the Suns to get back into the series. Matt, who do you view as the biggest X factor on either for either team in this series? Aaron Gordon. Uh, not just because of the three-pointers in that game, but AG had such a hard time in the Wolves series because he's going up against Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns all the time. He's just looking around like, they're so much bigger than me. Like, literally all the time, guys are about a half size bigger than him. In this series, it's opened up quite a bit, and you saw that. He's getting looks. He's confident. He's playing with aggression. He's going to have some plays on the inside. He has a really tough bucket late on M1. He is going to have a lot of opportunities in the series. If AG is able to be that third guy, it's going to be absolutely massive because if you're like, well, we got to put more attention on AG, then there's MPJ. This is the thing with the Nuggets versus the Suns here. The Suns' top two guys are incredible. They're amazing. And they had really realistically, KD was on one last night. So just absolutely incredible shots. He's always going to hit. Book can probably play better. But the Nuggets have, okay, you're going to have to stop Jokic and Murray and AG. And MPJ. And that's one of the biggest advantages I think that they have in this series is their team play and how they play together. It's going to be a challenge for the Suns if Aaron Gordon has a great series. For a full breakdown on this game and the rest of the series as it unfolds, y'all have us covered over at Locked On Nuggets. Matt, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Jalen Brunson and the Knicks dropped game one against the Miami Heat and an injured Jimmy Butler. Are the Knicks in trouble? We're going to get there in just one moment. Final segment here at Locked On NBA Monday. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked On NBA part of your day every single day. Joining us now is the host of Locked On Knicks, Alex Wolf. You can follow wherever you listen to your podcast and on YouTube. Just search Locked On Knicks. And Alex, the Knicks falling to the Heat 108-101 in game one of this best of seven semifinals series. Let's let's walk through it here. I mean, what was what was the number one reason to you? that the Knicks lost this game three-point shooting what the heck else could it be you know what I mean like you shoot 20 percent from three on somewhat decent volume in an NBA game in 2023 you're probably not going to win I mean it was just that simple I actually think the Knicks did a really good job especially in the first half of generating open looks from three for guys that traditionally make them like Emmanuel quickly got a lot of open three looks uh Jalen Brunson got a number of open three looks he was a 40 percent shooter this year uh, RJ Barrett got a number of good looks, Quentin Grimes. They managed to get some Josh Hart, Obi Toppin and Obi was kind of the only one that managed to do anything, even like NBA league average with those looks. And he shot four of 11, uh, and was like, may as well have been their Steph Curry today, you know, with, with the lack of production all across the rest of the roster, nobody else made more than one, three and pretty much everyone shot at best, like one of three, one of four, which is just not going to get it done. Um, it was the three-point shooting. But then, you know, they they managed to keep things close or even take the lead in the first half just by virtue of getting into the paint and scoring points that way. And they were running in transition really well. Like, they are kind of, in many ways, doing some of the same things that won for them against the Cavs. But then, I think in the second half, kind of let their foot off the gas a little bit. They weren't, like, the Heat then decided, okay, they're not really guarding us in transition because it seems like they're still 
in a mode to play against the slowest team in the NBA in the Cavs. So we're just going to send Jimmy Butler like out like a wide receiver and have Kevin Love bomb it to him every single time for like five straight possessions and see how long it takes him to adjust to that. And the answer was like five possessions and they got like 10 free points out of that. Um, so it's just, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that, just little adjustments that weren't being made throughout the game. And then obviously just not making shots. And and then, you know, the Knicks just kind of down the stretch, I think sort of lost their chill a little bit and and came unraveled over the last like four or five minutes and and let that kind of seal the game for them. Yeah, I, I'm curious your thoughts on kind of what some what were some of the main causes for that unraveling because it really kind of felt like the Knicks came out so strong in this game, right? I mean, 32-21 to start after the first quarter and that included what was like a one for seven start from Brunson. Like it felt like he really couldn't get anything going offensively early in this game. And yet you look and the Knicks are leading by 11. So you're probably feeling pretty good about that. And then over the course of the rest of the game, the final three quarters, things just started to kind of unravel as you alluded to. What were some of the the reasons for that, that you think kind of caused that to happen? They were being kind of sloppy with the ball, you know, turnovers uh, that weren't even just bad pass turnovers. Like it just seemed like the heat just had this game plan of, we're going to strip the ball away from everybody, you know, like, and that was just kind of their, their go-to thing was anytime there was a Nick driving the paint, they were going to have like four sets of hands coming in, trying to, to rip the ball away. And, you know, RJ Barrett, Jalen Brunson, even, I mean, none of them were doing particularly great job of, of protecting the ball going into the paint. I don't think, uh, which led to a lot of, you know, if not turnovers in the moment, a lot of busted up plays, you know, where they just, then were scrambling like, Oh crap. You know, now we only have half the shot clock to work with. We have to fully reset. And then the Heat were just staying on them and, you know, keeping up with them uh, uh, as they were trying to run their offense and just led to a lot of bad shots in that way. Um, I, I think the other part is just, I don't, like, I can't even fully figure out why they weren't able to take better advantage down the stretch because you had Jimmy Butler go down with an, a twisted ankle. They and, didn't you attack know, Jimmy at all in those final five minutes. And I was sitting there waiting for, okay, you see a player kind of hobbled on the Very clearly, Jimmy was hobbled with about 5.05 to go, right? Rolls his ankle really badly on a drive. And at no point did they make it a point to try and attack him defensively, even though he was not moving well at all. He was, he was like hop skipping out there on the court, just trying to get through the pain. Exactly. And, and you know, even the heat on offense were just running him essentially as a decoy in the corner. You know, he wasn't he wasn't threatening to do anything on offense, you know, and the Knicks were still kind of respecting him there, which was then opening the floor more. But then, you know, and it's like if Jimmy Butler, if if Jimmy Butler's going to try to beat you as a spot up shooter, you let him try because he, that is not his forte. Like he is not a spot up shooter. He never has been. He never will be. You know, so you could put minimal defensive attention on him and, you know, divert your efforts elsewhere. And they weren't doing that on the defensive end. And then, yeah, on offense, it's like. One possession stands out to me where they had R.J. Barrett come down the floor who, you know, is for all of his faults, like one of the best guys at generating drives to the rim, I think, on this entire Knicks team. And you get Jimmy Butler in a one on one with him and then they immediately call for a a screen from Brunson and get a switch on the Lowry who was cooking and who, like his hands were like, I mean, he was he was not he was one of the main guys that was knocking the ball. A lot of deflections hand. from Lowry. Yeah. In that second half, and it's like, okay, why are you generating this switch? You have this one-on-one -on -one matchup, like, and they had Butler on an island, and then willfully went and created that mismatch, uh, where you got then Lowry who can quickly poke it away from Barrett, and that blew up a possession. It was just so, some head scratchers, you know. Yeah, I don't understand why they didn't like that. Could have been 
an inflection point for the Knicks when Butler gets hurt. Like you don't want an injury to be a reason that you end up winning a game. But look, if they're going to keep a clearly injured player on the floor, you're you should go after him. You know, that's that's how it should go. And instead, they kind of let the heat off the hook in that regard and just said, oh, we're still going to play Jimmy Butler the same as if we assume that he's fully healthy, which he wasn't. And then, yeah, things just kind of fell apart from there. It was, it was very bizarre to watch the Knicks fan, you know, just like looking at it and thinking, OK, here's, you know, look, you don't want to you don't want to ever root for injuries or anything. But you see something like that happen and naturally you go, OK, this is an opening. You know, it's unfortunate Jimmy Butler just got hurt here, but take advantage of this now, you know, like go close this game out, win this game one, take care of business at home. And they didn't do that. So I don't know. It's uh, it'll be interesting to see what Butler's status is going to be going into game two and also how the Knicks decide to handle that going into game two, because they didn't seem to have much up their sleeve as far as adjusting in the game in this game. What silver linings can you draw from this game one for the Knicks? The fact that it was still so close, even though they shot 20% from three. I mean, you know, if they make a number, like just a small number more of three-pointers, they win. You know, that's it. You make three more three-pointers, that puts you like not even at 30%, I don't think. And you still win this game. You know, that's that's crazy. What's the status of Julius Randle uh, moving forward? Tough to say. Um, you know, he he sprained his ankle towards the end of the regular season, missed about like two and a half weeks. Came back, played on it against the Cavs. He looked really good in the first game. As the series wore on, you start to want, you started to wonder a bit. Like he's settling a lot more for jumpers than you would have liked. But then finally, kind of found himself in Game Five again, and then unluckily steps on someone else's foot and twists his ankle like the exact same way. Looked really nasty. He wasn't able to put a ton of weight on it. I mean, it's a much quicker turnaround this time than it was after that first ankle sprain. And so it makes you wonder, like, just how good is he? But if you if you listen to the reports, he looked pretty good prior to this game. And it was there was a legitimate chance he was going to play. Uh, he went through apparently a very extensive workout prior to game one to test that out, like really went like full strength, trying to like see how it felt and, and if he'd be able to go. Ultimately, they made the the decision like, no, let's not have you go for game one. But that would lead me to believe that there's probably a decent enough chance he could be back for game two. And based off how things went in this game, like, I think you need him back at something like 80% or more. Like, he needs to be able to generate offense. That's that's going to be a, a must. And if he's just going to be out there as, like, a spot-up three-point shooter, just like with Jimmy Butler, that's not the best role for him. Fourth quarter Jimmy Butler, spot-up in the corner. <laughs> yeah, like, like, if that's essentially what Julius Randle is giving you, that's not going to be good for the Knicks. But if he's able to come in and do, like, what he did against the Cavs in game one – and kind of build off of that, then I would I would love to see him back. But like I would hope as a Knicks fan, like based off how well they played against the Cavs without him, you know, and at the end of that game and how well they played the end of the regular season without him, like that you could face a, a Heat team that was an eight seed and is without some of their key players too. Like they're gonna be without Tyler Hero this whole series. Like I would hope that if it means getting Julius's health more right for like game three, which is all the way to next Saturday. Uh, that you could do that and potentially have him sit game two to get more to 100%. But also, if he feels good enough to go game two, just you then just hope that Tibbs has the wherewithal to pull him if he's really dragging the team down by being not healthy out there and, you know, not providing, like, again, at least like an 80 or so percent version of himself. So it'll be interesting to watch. It's not always Tibbs' strong suit. Um, 
knowing when to pull the plug on his favorite guys when they're not playing well, be it due to injury or just not playing well, period. But I guess we'll see how it all goes. But the, the Randall saga is going to be an interesting one. And he does have the potential if, if he can come back and be healthy to completely swing this series because he's I mean, he's he's a potential all NBA player this year. I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what those lists are going to come out and say. But for my money, I think he was at least a third team all NBA or this year, like one of the 15 or so best players in basketball and was a, a the main consistent reason why the Knicks were able to put together such a good season. So I, I do hope that he's he's back and gets to make his impact in this series because he deserves it for for the season that he put together this year. For a full breakdown on this game and the series moving forward, you'll have us covered for everything over at Locked On Knicks. Alex, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Of course, always happy to come by, Jackson. Always happy to talk Knicks with you, even after a loss. <laughs> That's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Google, the Odyssey app, free and available on all podcast platforms. We're also available on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA. Biggest stories with the local experts.